Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Monday, July the 25th. Monday usually comes with bad news. Uh, most of us are not <laughs> particularly, to, uh, to borrow one of my uh, phrases, keen on Mondays. And when it comes to healthcare, it seems as if every day of the week is Monday. Lots of miserable news on the healthcare front last month. Had a conversation with my old friend Robert Pearl, physician, head of Amer one of America's leading healthcare providers. He argued when he came on your show that the parallel pandemics of COVID anxiety and gun violence are part of the same crisis of American healthcare. It's a crisis that he laid out in his best-selling book, Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients. Lots of other shows are on... Uh, the Shameful History of American Healthcare, according to my old friend Tom Hartman, who has a new book, The Hidden History of American Healthcare. Uh, we've had doctors on, like Matt Zachary, talking about how to make healthcare in America suck less, in other words, uh, make it less bad. Um, and even our more positive shows have been uh, focused on the ranking of which countries have the best healthcare system. So, Ezekiel Emanuel came on the show last year uh, talking about which country has the world's best health care. Well, the good news this morning, even if it is a Monday, is that um, the health care story might not be quite as bad as most of our guests recently have suggested. My guest today on the show, Harold H.H.W. Schmidt, has a new book out, The End of Medicine as We Know It and Why Your Health has a future, perhaps not only our health, but our healthcare system. Uh, uh, Harold uh, Schmidt is one of the pioneers of a kind of thinking known as systems medicine, which is articulated in this new book. And I'm thrilled that Harold is joining us from Aachen, which he reminded me was the seat of the old um, uh, Holy Roman Empire. Harold, welcome. Charlemagne. Yes, Charlemagne. And are you the new Charlemagne, Harold? The <laughs> medical Charlemagne? Now, yeah, uh, usually I have to uh, explain to people who think, well, what's the problem with the healthcare system? Why the end of medicine? You've done a great job in pointing out what's all not working in the moment. And unfortunately, the US is really the worst example of uh, all uh, western industrialized countries so um so <laughs> that part of the book is not necessary you can't even cheer us up about well so i i presented you as an optimist i'm not sure if there's such a thing harold as an optimistic german uh, but you're more optimistic than most especially when it comes to uh the healthcare industry perhaps you might explain what systems medicine is and why it's the core of the argument in your book about um, reinvent about the reinvention of medicine. What exactly is citizen uh, systems medicine? Yeah, I think a part of the many false incentives that uh, the US healthcare system and some other healthcare systems suffer from, the biggest error that uh, we have been doing in medicine and probably explainable 
because otherwise the data would not be handleable for a human brain is that we have split up the human body organ by organ. For every organ, we have a specialist and a research discipline. So we have cardiology, the cardiologist, uh, cardiovascular research. We have for the brain, neurology, the neurologist and neuroscience and so forth. So what we tend to believe in the moment is that if we just look at one organ, let's say the heart, we can understand the diseases that happen in the heart. And if the patient has any other symptom in any other organ that cannot possibly have to do anything with the heart, and then that patient is deferred to another specialist who takes care of the kidney or the lung. But if you think about a type of diseases where we actually know the, the, the causes, namely rare diseases, monogenetic diseases, where we actually know the one gene that causes that disease, then those diseases very often have symptoms in two or three, four or five organs, which means a disease definition that relies on symptoms in organs is completely flawed. But this is how medicine is currently structured. And the consequence of that is totally independent of healthcare systems that we hardly understand any disease. Therefore, we have to rely on treating symptoms. It's like if you would bring your car to a garage because your headlights constantly break and the owner of the garage tells you, I found the reason you have headlights chronically break disease, then you would probably say, yeah, I, I knew that actually, but I would like to know why do my headlights constantly break? And then the owner would say, I don't know, you just have to come now every three months, you get your new set of headlights and then you come back three months later. That's what's currently happening in, this, in, in medicine. Whether it's asthma, whether it's Alzheimer, whether it's hypertension, diabetes, we do not understand the causes of the disease and therefore we treat symptoms and therefore all these diseases become chronic. Well, so far, Harold, you've only depressed me even more. Um, yeah, I know, I know. So what systems medicine actually does, and that is not doable by the human brain, it basically combines all of these disciplines again, which is a, an amount of knowledge and amount of data um, that you can only handle with artificial intelligences or machine learning. And... Um, what we then see is that diseases that we in the moment treat by different doctors and different uh, clinics and so forth are actually connected. They occur very often in the same patient. They have similar risk genes. And then we revert the whole system and uh, we declare what we now call diseases just symptoms and the underlying, for instance, uh, disease-associated genes become then the lead to actually understand what is the cause of disease. One consequence of that, that 
we need to split up disease terms like hypertension, for instance, uh, which is just an umbrella term into hypertension, A, B, C, D, E. And um, for each of these subtypes actually defined a specific molecular cause, treatment and cure. Because then we actually move from chronically treating to curing diseases. And there may even be some forms of high pressure, uh, blood pressure, which need no treatment at all. Earlier today, Harold, we had the Oxford um, legal scholar Ariel Azrachi on the show warning us about why big tech wasn't very innovative, why it tended to be monopolistic and reactionary. And as I was looking through the headlines today, I noted that Amazon, I know these are all American companies, but nonetheless, Amazon has acquired one medical clinic in its latest push. It's a $4 billion deal. Meanwhile, there are warnings about digital privacy in a post-Roe world where governments will know whether or not uh, women are trying to get abortions. It worries me, Harold, that central to systems medicine is digital technology and big tech. You're optimistic, but there is an equally persuasive dystopian take on this, that these companies will know everything about us, that they will profit from us. After all, Amazon hasn't exactly benefited humanity, and they seem to have their eye now on taking over as much of American healthcare as they can get their hands on or their money on. So, so why should we be optimistic? Uh, technology has ruined media, it's ruined transportation. Why won't it ruin medicine even more? I mean, technology can always be misused. And uh, I mean, in Europe, we are. Yeah, sorry to interrupt, Tara. That, what I meant, and I, I should rephrase that. I'm not saying technology has ruined media. Um, or government, I'm suggesting that big tech, I mean, technology itself, of course, is neutral. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, as I said, the the answer to, or the, the step into a different type of medicine that is more precise, that defines diseases more precisely, maybe with a based on a genetic risk, a risk plus minus lifestyle. These can only, this can only be done uh, by big data. You can't uh, do this with PDFs or scribbled notes from a doctor on a sheet of paper. You need actually data. Uh, you need to be personally digitalized, so what's called a digital twin. Um, but there is the issue, I admit, of data safety, which in Europe we don't perceive as serious. In the US, which is data wild west, uh, yes, you're right. I'm, I'm not so sure. Uh, you have health insurance companies that exclude patients because of pre-existing conditions. Uh, you have companies that sell your data. You don't know where your data end up. Um, there is actually a difference between the US here and in Europe. In, in, in yeah. Europe, so, we yeah, have... Yeah, the... yeah. And, and it's a fair point. I don't want to make this always such a US. I'm in California, but I don't want to make this either too pessimistic or too US-centric, which often go together. Um, let's go back to the book by uh, Ezekiel Emanuel, a very distinguished American physician. Which country has the, best, has the world's best 
uh, the the world's best healthcare. In terms of your the revolution that you're pioneering of systems medicine, are there countries really pioneering this? Uh, I, I've spent a little bit of time in Estonia, where certainly yeah. the role of big data and healthcare is um, is pretty interesting. Um, is Estonia, or I'm assuming some of the other Nordics, are they pioneering systems medicine? At least providing the data. So we actually work very closely with the Estonian Biobank, uh, which have, for instance, data from 240,000 patients over 30 years, Scandinavia, the, the UK Biobank, and so forth. So these are very these are very important sources uh, for data for us. The implementation or the uh, value adding uh, out of this data, what we call systems medicine, is a scientific pursuit. And there I have excellent colleagues at Harvard University, at Karolinska. So it's, a, it's an international pursuit, um, not really dependent on what which healthcare system is currently uh, established in that country. But as a source for data, you're absolutely right. Estonia and the Scandinavian countries are light years ahead of many other countries. Explain what big data means in terms of medicine. Does it mean that we all have our bodies perpetually scanned? Is, is there a, some sort of central DNA bank which can identify yeah. us? Because when it comes to big data, um, certainly in the last big the global healthcare crisis of COVID, uh, Ken Kukia, the economist who, who authored a very popular book called Big Data, uh, suggests that it wasn't used properly. So, so what do you mean by big data and, and why are you confident that it will be used in the future correctly? Now, in uh, COVID-19, uh, the COVID pandemic, you have seen a surge of publications that made a lot of overstatements Many people tried to have uh, publications in high-impact journals, and it was more a symptom of a very pervert uh, publication culture that we currently have in medicine. It's, uh, it wasn't really uh, an example that uh, big, you can't pick out big data out of all these publications and say uh, the publication culture during the COVID-19 pandemic is an indication for uh, poor performance of big data literature. All literature during the COVID-19 pandemic that was published uh, in an overheated fashion. Uh, lots of paper had to be retracted. Lots of paper had quality issues. So that's not a good example to take COVID-19 uh, as an example. The, the bigger problem is that the whole, whole genome project has actually not delivered a lot of information, not fulfilled a lot of the promises. And the, the reason for that is, and the reason for that is that we're doing actually 21st century technology on 19th century disease definition. That's exactly the problem that uh, I mentioned with this organ-based disease definition. Let's say, for instance, hypertension. 95% patients uh, with, with hypertension are diagnosed with so-called primary hypertension, which means your blood pressure is elevated, but we don't know why. And the, the whys may actually be five or 10 different reasons. Yet 
people have done genetics on the whole umbrella term um, hypertension. And you end up with 200, 300 genes that are associated uh, with hypertension, which means the information on probably 10 different reasons why your blood pressure can be elevated were all lumped together. And in this sea of genes, nothing was ever achieved. So Harold, what is required for systems medicine on a political level? Does it require a publicly owned healthcare system? Could it work in a in a private system, or must must it have the Estonian style, uh, radically transparent digital data bank of healthcare information? I mean, for the research, you need those data. Once we have made all those uh, discoveries, uh, what are the causes of the different types of hypertension, the different types of Alzheimer, the different types of asthma, then we know it. And if you then want to benefit from this knowledge as a patient, for instance, uh, ideally before you become sick so that your disease risk is detected before you actually have developed symptoms, then you need to be digital. No one will be forced to uh, sequence your, your genome and so forth. But if you ever want to benefit from this totally different, more holistic approach of medicine, also more precise, um, then you need to have your data in some digital form. Um, but the, the problem is, for better or worse, that people are paranoid about yeah, I know. Data, particularly and their, I think... their digital data. We did a show last year with Jacob Ward, a prominent American journalist, warning us about artificial intelligence, suggesting that we're on the verge of a kind of an Orwellian system where everything is known about us by these faceless systems. So yeah, how maybe are you going to convince everyone bit, uh... to give up their data in an age of paranoia over privacy? Yeah, and I, I would say in the U.S., this paranoia about privacy is um, a it's the same in Germany. Uh, Germans are not exactly um, enthusiastic about revealing all their most private data, are they? Uh, yeah, Germans are a little bit spastic in that point, but uh, other countries in Europe are. A little what? In, in Europe, we have uh, the, the, the Digital Data Protection Act, which actually right. <laughs> uh, is very restrictive for these type of companies. Right. So you're, the, the more we talk about this, Harold, the more, uh, I mean, I appreciate your good intent and your vision, but it doesn't sound very realistic to me. What doesn't sound realistic? Your end of medicine as we know it. It seems if, if anything, we have the continuation of medicine as we know it. No. And that's why we have our something health doesn't have much No, 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 no. We will... Uh, once we understand the causes of disease, we don't have to wait any longer until... Um, so the science uh, is the thing. So, so the, the politics is less important than the science. So we're going to have these major scientific breakthroughs on the systems, uh, on the, uh, uh, the systems... Understanding of disease, front, let's put it that way. Yeah. change everyone's approach. You're suggesting that might mean the end of traditional doctors, of specialists, right? Yeah, because um, the, the actual potential that we have in medicine is not uh, treating symptoms or diseases better, but the real potential that we have is preventing disease. So in the moment, because we do not know uh, what are the drivers of a disease, 
we have to wait 30, 45 years until all of a sudden cholesterol levels are higher, all of a sudden the blood pressure is increased. We wasted all those years where we could have done prevention because we, in the moment, do not know what to look for. Once we know that, then we actually would turn to prevention and the role of a medical doctor would only be restricted to those stages when, yeah, prevention failed and then basically the repair does, Has prevention worked? I mean, everybody pretty much accepts the fact that we need to exercise, we shouldn't eat as much, yeah. it's, it's unhealthy the, to be overweight and yet the, the one of the great epidemics in the world is obesity. So, so, so why, why, given the fact that we tend to be resistant uh, against things that, for one reason or other, don't make us happy, wh wh why, why does that augur well for systems medicine? The problem with prevention in the moment is, uh, first of all, we don't have a molecular basis for that. It's the same thing as we don't understand diseases. So prevention is equally imprecise as our diagnostics and our treatments in the moment. In the moment, everything is suggested to everyone. So everyone is supposed not to smoke, drink little alcohol, um, don't eat so much meat, sleep well, exercise well, lose well, and so have good stress management, and so forth. Whereas probably not all these factors, these preventative measures, are not equally important for everyone. For instance, if I have a clearly identified genetic risk for colon cancer, then the number one advice would be don't eat so much red meat or processed meat. Because there we know exactly um, what's uh, going on that causes colon, colon cancer. If someone has uh, a clear risk for a myocardial infarction in their 45s and so forth, you would tell him, you must never smoke. Many other things are probably not so important for you, but do not smoke. So there are many people whose parents and grandparents died of lung cancer smoke. Many of these things are pretty much known already. No. If we I mean, knew it, known, then we would have a treatment for it. If, if both your parents and your grandparents, for example, died of lung cancer, then you sh it's fairly self-evident that you shouldn't smoke. But many people continue to smoke. Well, that's another thing is... Um, one thing is that the prevention in the moment is totally imprecise and everything is suggested to everyone. The thing is then is um, why do uh, some people not adhere to the simplest uh, preventative measures? Uh, there comes into place that um, health and life expectancy is also correlated to your socioeconomic status. So people with a lower socioeconomic status, not really education, it is basically your economic right. status, have a nine-year shorter life expectancy. In some cities, you can predetermine the life expectancy based on the zip code. And on top of that, if you're male, you have a five-year shorter life expectancy. Yeah, I, that doesn't surprise me. So I wonder whether one of the more troubling consequences of the revolution you're talking about is an increasing inequality of a, of a high-end, of highly no. well-educated, networked people 
who are living to, you suggest, 100 or even 200, and then everyone else who's dying at 50 or 55. No, it's not so much about living uh, longer necessarily. It's about healthy aging. So not having uh, a stroke when you're uh, early 60 and then living 20 years uh, highly disabled. So it's not about uh, living longer, uh, essentially. And um, the this, this type of uh, medicine that is evidence-based that doesn't waste effort. In the moment, we have an input-based system. Whatever a doctor decides to prescribe a surgery or an uh, intervention is more or less uh, charged and, and reimbursed. So what we actually need is, and that's also been uh, advocated by the World Economic Forum in Davos, we need a value-based medicine where actually only the patient benefit that is achieved is reimbursed, not every single measure. And as so, I said, before, I, I'm not sure, Harold, if that's going to be particularly popular, particularly in America, where you're, you're suggesting if if people have a procedure which can't be justified, then you're suggesting they have to pay for it. Well, we had some example like that uh, now with gene therapy. Gene therapies are, of course, highly innovative. Uh, they required uh, gigantic uh, research efforts and so forth. And uh, there were now, or there are now, gene therapies on the market, uh, which are, because of the investments that had been made in those, are hugely expensive. And uh, in, in Europe, the, the deal with some healthcare uh, providers was, um, you only have to pay if the therapy is successful. So there you have an example of a value-based uh, deal that that are possible. But sometimes and, these things, some of these things aren't even quantifiable. For people watching, behind Harold are some posters of popular medicines. There's Viagra, which I guess you can prove if it's working or not. And then Ritalin, which is a, a medicine that more and more young people are taking to confront and cure their anxiety. Uh, can these things be proved, Harold? I mean, if you take Ritalin and you remain anxious, then would you get your money back? I think that's how it should be. And well, that's how, how a lot of people that? think I, how it I should mean, be. At what I point, mean, the, the, how the can all this be quantified? All of that, the, the, the US is probably in all of that the worst example. It has probably <laughs> some of the best hospitals and the best doctors in the world, but from all Western industrialized countries, it has the highest expenditure per person, $12,000. Yeah, you, you don't need to tell me. We've done so many shows on this. And, so that's the, not and the lowest but, life expectancy. So what's so, the opposite? Again, is this compatible? Is your systems medicine, Harold, is it compatible with democracy? Or do you think the, the sorts of places where it's going to be implemented would be perhaps... Singapore, a kind of enlightened authoritarian system? Because it sounds like a kind of enlightened authoritarian medical why? system. Why, why is it authoritarian to cure a disease? No, no one will be forced to donate their data. I'm saying um, if you want to benefit from that, then um, it's like you don't have to buy a car. You can also walk or go by bicycle. But if you want to... Uh, so yeah, but you're saying if you want to opt, you, but it's an opt-in system. So if you want to go to the doctor, you have to conform to this system. Everybody wants to go to the doctor. No one wants to just opt out of the medical system. 
Yeah, but you, as I said, you don't have to uh, sequence your genome. But if you want to benefit ever from genetic evidence of causes of disease, you need to know what your genetic variants are. And you, but you don't have to do it. You can carry on in the current system. You can declare yourself chronically ill as a hypertensive patient, take your medication for 40 years. That's fine. No one will force you not to do that. But if you have the... Someone's, uh, but, but, but you're suggesting that the healthcare system might not actually fund that. You may have to pay for the medicine yourself. Why? Why should, uh, why should uh, a healthcare provider not rather uh, uh, support a medicine that actually cures you, prevents your myocardial infarction, prevents your stroke, as opposed to just lowering your blood pressure and hoping that in some of those patients uh, the stroke will be prevented, which it isn't in most patients. It's not that all patients who take their blood, med uh, blood pressure medication will be prevented from a stroke. 80% will still get their stroke, despite their blood pressure has been normalized. Harold, so we have the issue of politics. We have the issue of... Uh people not really wanting to change. What about the issue of the drug manufacturers? Behind you are some images of Ritalin and Viagra. These are products that have made some companies and some Actually, the, the pictures behind me, to clarify this, are a masterpiece from an art student who was a drug addict and through entering the art school, he actually escaped that scene. Right, so I, I apologize, but then nonetheless, you're... Your that there are images of of, of popular yeah medicine. yeah we, these we've were, done a these number of shows on on big pharma we did one week took while he was uh, in the drug scene okay and so that's a fair point so, but, but let's just talk about big pharma we've big done pharma is no dead. Uh, if you 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 have seen one uh, chapter maybe in my book which is called the end of big pharma big pharma is uh, close to dead. Uh, for several reasons. Since the 60s, the efficacy of the pharmaceutical industry is in a constant decline. It now costs between uh, three or five billion dollars to bring one drug successfully to the market. And you have seen, heard the many unsuccessful attempts in Alzheimer, for instance, and the scandals uh, around that. So, Bringing drugs to the market with such imprecise disease definitions becomes increasingly... Some of these companies are, I mean, Abramson's book, um, it's called Sickening, How Big Pharma Broke American Healthcare. We did another show with Alexandra Zajcik, owning the sign of people's history of mon monopoly medicine from aspirin to COVID-19 vaccines. Both these people who are very critical of Big Pharma remind us that big pharma is profitable some big pharma is profitable so it's not just going no. to go away is it no 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 so big pharma is not profitable the return on investment as i said uh, you can look up all the references in the grass in my book it's on a constant decline and uh, it's predictable that uh, by the end of this decade big pharma in the current form will not exist anymore imagine 20 years ago big pharma were among the three the, the 10 uh, most profitable companies 
since many, many years that they aren't. I mean, they benefited, of course, for a short time from the huge incomes with the COVID-19 vaccines. But in principle, the, the concept of big pharma uh, developing blockbuster drugs for millions of patients for one disease, is just, it doesn't work. So, um, but the fact that it doesn't work, I'm not in disagreement there, but it's still going to continue. This is a huge sector of, again, I don't want to make this just about America, but it, it's a huge sector of the American economy and of the global economy. These companies aren't going to just shut themselves down. You will always need uh, companies that produce uh, pharmaceuticals, but no longer in a couple of years with patented, highly expensive drugs. Uh, in a couple of years, we will have. Why should we eternally develop new drugs once we understand the mechanisms of all diseases and can treat them uh, in a precise manner? Why should we eternally need to develop new drugs at one stage and pretty soon within this decade, we will have all the drugs that we need? Maybe here and there a drug has uh, too short of a half-life or uh, it has maybe a few side effects and then you develop a variant from that. But in principle, we will very soon have all the drugs that we need. And there then, won't there be some diseases, cancer, Parkinson's, that we're going to be continually researching and improving the medicines no. on? Even cancer, Parkinson, they will be mechanistically understood. Cancer will be treatable with um, pretty normal, non-toxic drugs. We know about, in the moment, 380 cancer driver genes. The current drugs that are currently used in um, cancer therapy cover about 40 or 50 of those. So the majority of known cancer driver genes are not exploited what, therapeutically. Uh, 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 what about mental illness, Harold? Uh, anxiety? Mental illness, mental illness uh, psychiatry is one of the worst disciplines in medicine. First of all, they have decided um, we develop our own um, nomenclature of diseases. So they, they say psychiatric diseases have nothing to do with the rest of the body, whereas we by now know it has a lot to do with the rest of the body, the, the brain with the GI tract and so forth. And um, you probably read today or yesterday the, the scandal about uh, Alzheimer's disease that actually fraud was done. Uh, yes. That 15 years of research and billions of, of drugs, uh, billions in drug development were actually wasted and, and probably lots of patients uh, died because of that. So um, psychiatric and neurological diseases are probably amongst the worst that are understood. I mean, uh, also this week a paper came out uh, stating that uh, the old theory that depression is an imbalance of some neurotransmitters. It's just wrong. It's not serotonin selective inhibitors, you know, the most frequently used drug in, in depression. Their mechanism of action is totally unclear. They probably act by a growth hormone, not by serotonin. So there are so many, there are so many evidence with very, very thin eyes or no eyes at all that you can only imagine what it will change if. You, you have all of a sudden precise disease definitions, causes. You know what causes that my headlights burn. And then you 
exchange that part in the car and then your headlines won't ever burn again. So yeah, the headline. And, it, and it's not expensive. I, I mean, Harold, uh, tomorrow or Wednesday, I'm doing a show with a woman who has a, a book out about the history of schizophrenia. Are you suggesting that these diseases will also essentially end? Yes. Schizophrenia is not one disease. It's a descriptive term. And it's probably, I mean, if you look at the nomenclature of this schizophrenia, you will find so many subdivisions. These, you know, these are all um, sort of descriptions of something that is not understood. There is, there is an overlap between schizophrenia and dementia. There's an overlap between dementia and depression. There's an overlap between dementia and, and co uh, cognitive impairment. These are all airy-fairy terms you cannot treat patients with these type of disease definitions. That's why I said we use 19th century disease definitions and apply on them 21st century um, uh, methods, methodologies. So let, let, have... Let's imagine that what you're saying actually happens and we do come to the end of medicine. How is this going to play out in terms we come of to our a new medicine? Of, it's not uh, medicine uh, will not end, but we will come to much more prevention yeah, is, is it coincidental, society? Harold, that this is all happening at a time where we're inventing smart machines? That it's happening now. In it's happening now. We are now doing those, those clinical studies. Okay, but um, uh, uh, is it any coincidence this is happening at a time when we're inventing smart machines that mimic us in, in many, many ways? I don't, I mean, the whole term artificial intelligence is totally misleading. It's a buzzword. It's actually the older term. The, it, it was used once in the 50s and in the 60s. The more correct term is machine learning. There is zero intelligence in artificial intelligence. It's learning, ob observing and learning, and then reapplying that learned to similar events. There is no intelligence needed. You just need to be able to uh, learn a lot and apply it. And, and Harold, a lot of people are going to be listening to this and watching and thinking um, that this, this is a very attractive future. And some people will say that it's not realistic. Others will want it to be realistic. There's nothing inevitable about this. But for people watching and listening who, who want the end of medicine, uh, um, not what the end of medicine do? as we know it. We want the, a new Okay, medicine, but what can we do? How can we, how can we manifest our human agency to make your vision real? What can people actually do? The most important thing that we as scientists in the moment need to present is after this, this problem analysis to provide the, the evidence that this new approach, precision in diagnosis and treatment, ideally prevention, is possible. We need to show it into the face of the clinicians. With this approach, it's possible. We have successes that were previously unthinkable. And then basically you have a tilting moment, a tipping moment when the whole system needs to change because the evidence is overwhelming. And that but will not be scientific revolution. Years. But what about ordinary people, Harold, who aren't scientists? How can they help this, make this a reality? Well, one good thing is to like be myself. informed. I, I, I want this, but I yeah, don't understand so, how it works. So, so one good thing uh, to, is to be informed. As I said, um, high 
higher income, knowing about healthy lifestyle improves your own life expectancy. So in a, a bottom-up approach, questioning uh, such therapeutic decisions by your doctors, getting a second opinion, getting a third opinion, uh, not accepting immediately every therapeutic decision uh, of a doctor, trying to understand it. I mean, if people buy a flat screen TV, they screen for weeks, tests, they compare different uh, TVs, they ask their friends, have you heard about that? Should I get OLED? Should I not get OLED? Should I get 4K or not 4K? What's the best technology? What's a smart TV? How smart should my TV be? You know, but with their own body, they just go to a doctor, whatever he diagnoses, whatever he uh, prescribes, okay, I take it. You know, they, they need to be, they need to recognize that it's the most precious thing. It's the body. They, they, they need to take charge of it. Of course, it is more difficult if you live in uh, um, uh, poor conditions, if you, if you have three jobs and, uh, and so forth. And, and then on top of that, you should inform yourself uh, about uh, health, healthy lived lifestyle and, and your uh, possible diseases. That's why uh, people with, that live in precarious situation, Amazon divers and so forth, they don't have the time probably for that. So uh, you you need to improve the quality of life, the, the living conditions for people that they get their head above water and actually sort of inform themselves. But, well, yeah. Uh, uh, so, well, one way you could start, everyone, if you want to understand your body is to read uh, Harold H.H.W. Schmidt's new book. Maybe yeah, that's one thing. As we one know start, it, yeah. and why your health has a future. It's an interesting thesis. I have to admit I'm slightly skeptical, but uh, it's a very compelling and, and, and controversial idea. Congratulations, Harold, on the new book. What else are you reading these days? What other books? Yeah, it's. Um, I have a, uh, an older book and a, a not so uh, old book. Uh, the current book that I like a lot is from Norina Hertz. It's about uh, the lonely century yeah, um, because Norina. one of the uh, health factors is, of course, uh, loneliness. Um, a lot of uh, single uh, households, uh, uh, previously people died at home. Now dying is sort of uh, outsourced into... Yeah. Uh, uh, hospitals or whatever elder care homes and that is actually not only tragic for our society also social media uh, Facebook friends you know pseudo friends uh, Instagram is actually a very interesting book that how important uh, uh, it is to to be socially embedded and the other thing is uh, it's called linked that's a, that's a book by uh, Lashlo Barabasi um, who states, who shows that everything is connected with everything and uh, you can, it's sort of uh, a theme for systems medicine, but it's also for our environment. You know, we experience that in the moment. Um, we experienced it that uh, COVID-19, that all of a sudden uh, we thought health is under control, but a, a little virus uh, basically shut down the, the entire world or climate change. Uh, you know, impacts every one of us, impacts uh, our health uh, and social networks. So, so those two books uh, I find uh, quite eye-opening.